Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. People talk about how divided we are as a country, as if it's some new, horrible thing, but we've always been divided. We've been divided from the beginning. We were divided over whether or not to seek independence from England. We were divided over embracing the Constitution. We were divided over the humanity of African Americans and the institution of slavery. We've always been divided. The difference now, obviously, is that not only do we have the ability to disagree over basic facts, but people can disseminate propaganda and lies with the click of a button. So people can really just hunker down and double down on a lie even, and sometimes aren't challenged by it. And sometimes if they are challenged by it, or if they try to challenge the lie, they can get in trouble from you know, other folks in that bubble. So my question is, how do you govern an environment like this? I think that that's a question that, frankly, all of us, we the governed, should be asking. I decided to start the conversation with two lawmakers on opposite sides of the aisle, this time from the great state of Alabama. Anthony Daniels is Alabama's House Minority Leader. He's a Democrat. He is the first African-American and the youngest House Minority Leader in Alabama history. He's been on the show before. He's a friend. And Mike Ball is an 18-year veteran of the Alabama legislature. He's a Republican. And before he joined the Alabama House of Representatives, he was, among other things, a hostage negotiator. Here's my conversation with Representative Anthony Daniels and Representative Mike Ball of Alabama. Welcome to the show, Representative Ball and Representative Daniels. One of the things I want to explore is this idea about bipartisanship and compromise. Because on the one hand, gentlemen, everybody says they want it, right? Everybody says, I want leaders who compromise But on the other hand, it seems to me that primary voters who are the ones who decide who's going to stand in general elections, I'm not sure that they really do like it. And then I'll even take it a step further. I sometimes think that when we talk about bipartisanship and compromise, perhaps we're not focusing on the right things, right? Because there are some things about which some of us don't want to compromise. I mean, there are some people who don't believe that Brown v. Board of Education is a good Supreme Court case. I don't necessarily want to compromise with those folks. Don't you think that the issue now is how do you even start the process of picking a bucket of issues over which compromise is possible in an environment that's as heated and contentious as the one we're in right now? Representative Ball. You know, we have an adversarial process. Legislative politics is an adversarial process. It was designed to have a majority party, a minority party. It's part of the system of checks and balance. I think the problem is that, and when the political switches come on, then people get in with their herd or with their tribes, and everybody's thinking us versus them. When those moments in the legislative process arise, where things really get done, where good policy is developed. What happens is there are those times 
when personal relationships come forward and we're able to turn off our political switches for a minute and just be people and start focusing on what's the problem instead of my side versus your side is are my ideas going to beat your ideas you remember the old mad magazine uh spy versus spy cartoons that's what politics has turned into if therefore we're going to be against it and vice versa at some point people have to be able to flip that switch off and start thinking see politics as it is today and as it's becoming more and more it's fueled by fear Representative Daniels, how do you begin the process of trying to build consensus when we're in the midst of the sort of (laughs) domestic warfare that we now seem to be in? I think, you know, Representative Ball and I have been close since my coming into politics. And so he's one of the people that I can go to and talk about issues and because of his background as a hostage negotiator and, and someone that is a, a statesman in my eyes, he's able to help me navigate the other side on issues that may be very complex. And so when it comes to certain issues, as he talked about on the religious front, there's always going to be a separation. But for me, as a minority leader, my job is to negotiate with the other side to either reduce the impact of bad policy so that it doesn't necessarily impact my constituents negatively, but to also hold them accountable for the things that they lay out there. And so a lot of times when you're in my role, you're in leading the negotiating, but you also have to play defense against extreme policies and educate the public. But what we try to do is figure out where our differences are and try to iron them out while our members are at the heat of debate on the floor. So it's similar to wrestling, right? What you see is not real. That's things that are happening. We're in the background negotiating, trying to find a compromise so that all of the theatrics can be laid to the side and we can get down to business. I do think that a lot of the most difficult battles are inside the caucuses, about the caucuses trying to decide what they're going to do. A lot of the intra-party battles are a lot more difficult. And I will tell you this, a lot of my difficulties have been from the extreme elements of my own party. And I've seen some of that to Anthony. They're wanting to fight instead of finding a way to collectively come to some agreements. And it seems as if our process has got, and nationally it's gotten horrible. I, I think there are folks in the media that, that really exacerbate that too. I mean, I guess it gets ratings or I don't know, but but the real work and the process works best when we can moderate those extreme elements of the parties. But it seems right now that the contention has just continued to build. And as an old hostage negotiator, I know that until temperatures get pulled down, you just can't make meaningful progress toward a goal everybody that that's an outcome that's desirable, the, the most desirable for everybody. And uh, and I'm I'm hoping that that the farther away we get away from this election, that we'll have a, a period of calm where we can everybody can take a deep breath. When we work on pieces, there there are dividing lines on pieces of legislation that really is feeding red meat to the base. And those are issues like the abortion issue is always an issue, or some religious issue. It always breaks down, but 
that comes from the fringes of the caucuses where that's what they they thrive on right and that's what they ran on and so sometimes you have to feed those individuals and give them a bone to to carry just to satisfy them so that you can get real work done and so sometimes it's it's a, it's a game of chess to be honest with you do you think that the extreme elements in our political system are becoming more influential and have more of a voice and are actually driving the debate in a way that they weren't before? Because, you know, think about 10 years ago or 15 years ago. We didn't have as many platforms. It wasn't possible. Rather, it wasn't as easy for just anybody to pick up a mic, promote a conspiracy theory, and then make that fact. And now something that concerns me as, you know, just a a citizen is whether or not those fringe elements are controlling the debate. What do you two say to that? They're certainly the loudest uh, um, when it comes to that. But I do think that it has a lot to do with access to people, right? You have social media and other platforms that make it easier for them to, to be loud and to be boisterous. There's a lot of misinformation campaigns out there. There's a lot of rhetoric that's out there that's designed to attack the middle. And that is from both sides of the aisle. But to say that they're driving the train, I would say that you can give them dessert in order for you to kind of move the meal, right? The big pieces. So if you satisfy them with some of what they want on the front of the extremes, it allows you to move the process forward with things that are actually going to be very impactful. And so sometimes you have to sacrifice that in order to move the needle. Um, but it's going to continue to happen this way because we have, you know, when you're drawing district lines and making safe districts, all of those things also have an impact in your primary. And a lot of the, the loudest voices in, in your primary are, are those that are much, much more extreme. Do you feel hampered, Mike, sometimes by the more extreme voices in your party? I mean, what Anthony just said is that sometimes there's this extremism that's pulling you to one side. Do you feel hampered or handicapped by it? Are there things that you wish you could get done as a policymaker that you feel like you can't? I have a highly educated uh, district here in Huntsville, a lot of PhDs, a lot of people can connect the dots. And I've never been one to be afraid to stand up to extremists on either side or both sides. As a matter of fact, I've got no use for it. And I've been very fortunate. I believe the folks in my district have been very good. If, if I do something like medical cannabis, which is outside the norm for a, for a Republican from Alabama, and quite frankly, a lot of people thought I was crazy when I first started. But then I started explaining the evidence and the reason why I started parading these people who can be helped, who have the help. We wound up getting a million dollars a year put into the into the Alabama state budget to study the effects of cannabis. And then UAB, after they did the research for several years, they found, hey, this works. So we have been making progress. We're still at where we are. But, but now there were extremists that had made up their mind it was the devil's lettuce, and they, and, and they couldn't see that what had happened is that what the good Lord made for good, people have been using it for bad. We need to to use it for good. I mean, what I'm saying is the extremists, what you have to do to face them, number one, you can't let them make you what they are. But what you have to do, you have to be firm, you have to have facts, and you have to stick to it. You can't cower down for them. And I will say this, if this is going to get better, 
you're going to have to have Democrats on their side that are going to have to engage their extremists, and you're going to have to have Republicans that engage their extremists. Because what what happens when the other side is lobbing bombs over to each other? All they're all they're doing they just they're just stirring each other up. So ultimately, in order for this process to work, those extremists in the party are the responsibility of the people of the party. I I stand up to them. A lot of folks cower from them. It's a lot easier to cower from them. Until we get to the point that people with a moderate tone who are mutually respectful to everybody, until we get to the point that there's enough members of the public that are tired of it all, that want some peace and want some calm and want people to to work together for the common good. Until we get to the point that there's more of that and and the voices of some radical moderates and and I don't know how I know it sounds like an oxymoron but I'm but I'm fast becoming one. You know, I'm reminded in the 2012 election if you recall when Senator McCain was running And someone at one of his events uh, tried to impugn President Obama's citizenship, said he wasn't a citizen, he was Muslim, uh, who didn't deserve the presidency. And Senator McCain just shut it down. And that became a really, I think, famous moment in American, I don't want to say American political theater, but American political culture, because it was real, where he shut down that partisan who was saying unfair things about his opponent. Anthony, have you found yourself in a situation recently, like especially in this really highly charged environment where you've had to say to some of your Democratic partisans, okay, chill out. Everybody is not from the the empire of evil. Everybody on the other side isn't a dyed-in-the-wool racist or corporatist or whatever the ism is that people are challenging. Do Do you sometimes find yourself having to say to folks, we need to take it down a notch? Yeah, especially those that have been in the legislature for quite a period of time. They don't look at the person, they look at the party, and they put the label on the person based upon what they've experienced from the party, instead of taking that person at face value and getting to know them. And I think that's another problem with the political process is that while we're in the legislature, there's no chance for Republicans and Democrats to really actually hang out with each other. And so... You're not able to really do it like you did in the old days where you would go out and have a beer or cigar or or have coffee with the person across the aisle to kind of talk through issues. That seems to have kind of lost its way in politics. And so, yes, I've had to actually have conversations with a number of members in my caucus about individuals on the other side that they had all wrong. And because my thing was I know the person and I know their heart. And sometimes when we hear something, we hear what we want to hear and make assumptions about what the intent was. When a lot of times, you know, we really need to go through some type of cultural training and awareness and understanding. Yeah, I've had to do that with some of some of my members and other individuals that are politicians in other parts of the state that have the same there. They have the Washington mindset. And so if you're, you carry a D or an R on both sides of the aisle, they automatically have this perception of who you are instead of getting to know you. So, yeah, I've, I've had to do that more often than not. Do you find yourself in the same position, Mike, where you sometimes have to corral some of the more extreme elements in your party and say, 
we're not being effective now. Like what you're saying is just not true. Do you, do you find yourself in that position from time to time? I have, yeah, of, of course. As everything Anthony said goes in the opposite direction exactly because that's what partisanship tends to do. And when people get all caught up in the partisanship, my team's better than their team and, and we're better than them or, and, 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 they're, and they're evil and we're good. And when they get all caught up in that, here's what happens. They'll see a behavior and if one of their political allies does it, then they'll explain it in the best possible context. And if somebody from the other side were to do the same thing, then they present it in the worst possible context. And it happens both ways. Well, I catch myself confronting extremely on both sides. I mean, I'm I'm sort of a mentor at large, quite frankly. Quite frankly, if if, if I was going to pick people that I've mentored in the legislature since I've been there, it's Republicans, but it's people in his caucus too that I think the world of. And that and what I'm saying is, yes, that happens the other way. And I will tell you, a lot of my harshest attacks have came from people in the Republican base. And I mean, you know, they'll call you a rhino or whatever. And, and quite frankly, my political views are below my, my love for my country and they're below my faith in my Lord. It seems that our politics have just taken far too high of a precedence in people's ethical and moral priorities. And I think we need a country of people trying to capture that back. And I don't know how to get there. I've had Republicans to tell me because they, they've done interviews and they talk about working with me and they end up getting threatened with being censured for saying something positive about me on television or that they've worked with me. Because a lot of times when you're in leadership, everybody is Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer that's in this role. But because my politics is more moderate than, than most, those individuals get attacked by the mere fact of them working with me. And some folks on the left get mad because they think I'm too soft on Republicans. Do you want me to be an effective legislator or you just want to be, be a, to be a partisan legislator that gets nothing done? And so it's, it's, it's sometimes it's very lonely, and, but you got to stay the course in order to change the system. How do we try to have a more realistic view about what a policy is? You know, now I feel like we're always just debating sound bites. And that's what it's become. The problem is people are too quick to put everybody in a box. You say, oh, Republican. Well, that's what I see. They're all like this. As a matter of fact, once upon a time, when we had racism in Alabama, that was what was at the core. They took a whole race of people and they said, they're all like this. And they dehumanize. And what we do is we dehumanize one another. That's what we do. And so we don't take time to see what the real motive is behind what somebody does. And I will tell you, most all hot button political issues that I've ever seen are driven by fear. And each side will have their own fears. And it's different fears. If you want to begin to defuse some of these political hot button issues, the first thing we've got to learn to do is understand what the other side is, is really afraid of. And we have to be able to explain to them what it is we're afraid of. One of my favorite Abraham Lincoln quotes of all time, and it's obscure, 
it, and, and, and I think it was Abraham Lincoln, he was talking about back when he was a backbench state representatives in Illinois, he said, you should never take a firm position on any political issue until you can state the opposing view to the opponent's satisfaction. And nobody does that anymore. So now we're coming up on the Georgia Senate race, very hotly contested, a must win for both sides. Right now, Republicans control 50 seats. This is without the Georgia results. The Democrats control 48. If the Democrats win both of those seats, it'll be a 50-50 split in the Senate. Vice President Kamala Harris will be the deciding vote and Democrats will have control of the Senate. If Republicans win one or both of those seats, then they will have a majority in the Senate. Whoever wins, it's still going to be a very, very tight Senate, regardless of the outcome. But let me start with you, Mike. Democrats say that if Democrats don't win, that the Republicans are simply going to obstruct and keep the Biden-Harris administration from getting anything done, and then the country's really going to be compromised because we won't be able to get anything done. What do you say to that? I would say, now I will tell you, there are people in our side that are just like, y'all got some people in your side that want to dig in like they do in Washington. And if the other, if we're not in charge, then we'll just block everything. I would probably say that if the GOP keeps a Senate majority, it might knock off the more radical fringe. That being said, if, if the Dems sweep that and get both of them, it's still a very, very narrow majority and there's a lot of things. As a matter of fact, if, if that happens and if having the House and the Senate and the presidency, if they try to do too much too fast, there's a backlash. And it seems like folks tend to do that when they have too much power, they try to backlash too much. So you know, I'm really a believer in the system of checks and balances. Anthony, I wish y'all's minority wasn't quite as small as it is. You know, we really, I mean, I mean, we, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean we just did two doggone good for some elections there. And our, you know, our Alabama Democratic Party had some horrible internal problems about messaging and about everything. And I would say this. For Alabama Democratic Party, you got Chris England as a party chair, brilliant guy, good guy. I think they'll probably be a bit smarter about picking their battles. And the thing is, you need a strong minority and a majority, and they need to work together. You can't have bipartisan. It's very hard to be bipartisan when you've got the numbers to just run over because it's a lot easier to use force and shove your policies down people's throats than it is to back up and take in some other ideas. And it's not about winning or getting my policy through. It's about getting the best policy. And you need a lot of perspective. And quite frankly, if you have less of that bitterness and resentment, when you do what you do, you are exponentially more likely for that policy to work when people start trying to implement. You know, speaking of checks and balances, you, uh, I saw an article about Anthony shortly after Anthony won uh, his race a few years ago. And it, there was a quote from you, uh, Mike, where you said that having someone like Anthony as minority leader would really help you up your game. Like it helps the other side. You know, we, we want to, it helps you sharpen the argument. 
flip side of the same question for you, Anthony. Uh, Republicans say that if Democrats win control of the Senate, it's going to be all taxes, bigger, bloated government all the time. What do you say to that? I say that the Democrats will need to be a little bit more sophisticated on how, on their messaging, because you can point to our debt increasing significantly under Trump, but nobody really talks about that. Right. And so you can use the counter arguments and get a little bit smarter on the on the way you talk about issues that traditionally appeal to conservatives. Right. I think that if Democrats are in charge, as Mike mentioned, it'll be a razor thin margin and Democrats have to look at maintaining the blue wall that was built under a Biden presidency. It wasn't an extreme Democratic candidate that was able to win Michigan that was able to win Wisconsin and other places. And so what America is saying, in order for us to maintain the blue wall, especially in places like Georgia as well, and to expand that, that our politics is going to have to reflect, our policies are going to have to reflect the country overall, as opposed to just one segment of our party. I think that as as I've seen done and demonstrated in Alabama, Democrats, we do have to feed the the left give them some small victories so that we can able we're able to govern successfully from the middle. But like what? Like what? Because what you might consider a small victory is something that one of Mike's partisans might say is the beginning of the end of Americanism. So give me an example of a small victory. So the the, the whole student loan issue is something that I'm I am very interested in because I think that in order for when you evaluate the real estate market, you evaluate um, individuals' ability to buy their first car, their first home, you're beginning to see less students that are with college degrees actually making, making those purchases. And so in order to keep the economy going, you need to be able to help stimulate the economy so that these new people that are coming into the economy are able to have money to spend, right? And so I don't think that that is necessarily far, far extreme, but I'm not saying eliminate 100 percent of their debt. I'm not saying that. Uh, While I think that would be ideal being someone that still are paying student loans. But I think that we have to to talk about it in a way to where it makes sense for those other markets. When we talk about an issue, we talk about eliminating student loan debt, but we're not talking about by eliminating certain portions of the debt, how that impacts the housing market? How does that impact you know, retail? How does that impact other um, entrepreneurship? And so we don't really package all of that together. And I think we have to start doing that in order to get the other side to say, okay, I can, ex- I can pitch this to my constituents, right? I can talk to the business community about this. I think that when it comes to healthcare, uh, we got to look at ways to, to get more people as COVID-19 exposed our healthcare infrastructure. And we have to figure out a way to really meet in the middle on the healthcare conversation, drive down costs, uh, but give up individuals an opportunity that wouldn't necessarily have an opportunity, access to healthcare, small business. As Democrats, uh, we're 100% support of all the tax incentives that come in for corporations, as well as things that are happening for small businesses. In Alabama, we're 100% on those issues, but we've never messaged it that way. Right. And so the Democrats have never taken ownership 
of the things that they've done for the middle and upper middle class in previous years and continue to do. But then what, what really ends up controlling the day is the extreme policies that one would say is a handout when it comes to the, the unemployment benefits that we got during COVID, folks got during COVID, right? We're incentivizing individuals not to go to work where my staff was knocking on the door ready to come back to work as soon as the state opened back up, right? Despite them actually making more on unemployment than they were coming to work every day. These are narratives that we have never got out front on and we continue to let them fester and they, they, they become this echo chamber. These conversations keep taking place and then people start believing that is what Democrats stand for. So we've never really defined who we are, what we stand for and what we've done. Instead, we've been reactive when something becomes an issue on the news. And the other side is very smart about how they take one issue and they repeat it over and over and over again. They don't spread it out to about five issues. They pick one issue. They'll hit that issue for the next three to four years. And that's how they get an advantage of us because they're planning long term. So let's talk to that other side because there's the other side right there. (laughs) I don't. I don't see us nearly as well organized as Anthony does, I guess. <laughs> no, 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 you know, no. Oh, no. I think partisanship is a necessary evil. It's necessary, but I think it is evil. Because, because it causes people to focus on a few things. It's very, and, and, and people have to use fear or mutual dislike for somebody. That's the, that's, a lot of times that's the glue that holds them all together. And so when people dabble in and get in politics, they need to be very careful with it and not get caught up in it. But what happens is we wind up getting, people wind up getting involved in a lot of issues that are largely symbolic. When you start talking about partisan kind of things and, and everything is, is, and it's driven by, by fear. One of the most important things is that, is that each side, you know, when you, when you implement these politics, you have to understand what the other side's afraid of, and then you have to try to find ways to alleviate the fears as much as you can. But one issue in Alabama, it passed several years, we passed a, a monument bill protecting, creating a state agency to protect all these monuments. And it seemed absurd, and of course that was that was one I didn't, me and one other guy was only two Republicans that just didn't vote with it. It was a caucus position and I was trying to, I couldn't do enough mental calisthenics to get myself to vote with them on it because one of the things, we had these state governments that put up all these monuments a, a hundred years ago, and now some state my governments, their political climate's changed and they want to tear down, the, the take down the government, the local government that put it up wants to take it down now. And so we were, one of the tenets that we claim is on our side is allowing local governance as much as possible and to avoid this big state government stepping in the lowest level. It was like the Democrats were arguing, taking our position and we were taking that. I mean, but it was bad policy. There was no reason to do that other than to protect their political symbols from way back when, and there were, you know, and, and it, it was a Confederate monument stuff. And, and you know, some people there were talking like it was history. Well, if it's history, you know, put it someplace else. The thing is that that bill that we passed, it was a bad law that we shouldn't have passed. 
it was over exceeding state government, the power of state, what we should have been doing. We had no business doing it. And it has been nothing but trouble since then. We have had local county commissions and local city governments, even Republican, that would like to do something about it and reorganize it and, and put them somewhere else. But they can't because we got this bad law that we passed. And we need to go back and drastically modify it, if not to outright repeal that law. That was that was a bad law, but it was but it, it was purely political. It didn't change anything about the quality of life of any citizen, one way or the other, whether you're for the monuments or against them, they don't change people's lives one bit. It's what they represent to people. You know, we work together so often, Republicans and Democrats in the Alabama legislature, but what? But when that thing came up and it had to come up because the caucuses, the parties and all these other people were weighing in on it. So it, it was, they waited until the end of the session but it killed the session. It's that political foolishness that people, they get caught up, they get engaged in it. And when you start trying to shove that stuff through, the force generates resistance. And if you use too much force, you generate too much resistance. And the force and resistance, they both get out of hand. And they tend to escalate one another until at some point it, it either has a, a confrontation or you have to adjourn for a while, or somebody has to say, stop, this is crazy. And people have to come to their senses. But I just get frustrated in the, in the messes. I'm glad you mentioned that, Bill, because you're referring to a bill to protect Confederate monuments. And it's a great segue to one of my last questions. You both are lawmakers in Alabama. Alabama, which has its own tortured and precious racial history. You know, when I was in uh, Alabama with my mom, I mentioned she's from Mississippi. She hadn't been back south, I think, since the 50s. Anthony took mom and me on a great tour of your state. It was my first time in Alabama. I was really blown away by a lot of the progress that I saw there and everything that mom says about the South is true. You all are just nicer. <laughs> You're nicer people. You're nicer. But how do we do better on race? Because, you know, as you point out, Mike, that reaction like my view, and I, I won't pretend to be objective about Confederate monuments. I don't think that they have any place in uh, the public square. I'm descended from the people that those Confederate generals were trying to enslave. So I'm unapologetically not in favor of celebrating the Confederacy. But you, as you point out, it really almost seems like it was about something else, because we also know that a lot of those monuments weren't erected after the Civil War. Um, they were erected in response to Reconstruction. I mean, I'm sitting in front of the picture of Robert Smalls, who was born enslaved in South Carolina, uh, stole a Confederate battleship, delivered it to the Union Army, ended up running for office. He was in Congress, represented the state of South Carolina in, in Congress. He bought the, his master's house, his fort where he'd been enslaved. So there were a lot of really incredible things happening post-Civil War for African-Americans. And then there was a backlash against that. And then we saw all of these monuments and people celebrating the Confederacy. So my question to both of you, you know, you are representatives in this state with this very special history. How do we do a better job? No doubt things are better 
than they were when my mom was growing up in Jim Crow, Mississippi. No doubt. The two of you have forged a friendship that obviously transcends race and political party. Uh, you both said such lovely things about each other. But how do we do better as a country than we're doing now so that we don't always just become so reactive and angry when we're sharing experiences? How, how are we going to get there? I will tell you, it's going to be very difficult to get there until we really take a look at these district lines, right? We got to create more opportunities for the middle to have a voice and the fringes on the both sides are going to, we're going to have to really put them in check so that they will listen to more voices than their echo chamber, right? That's in the, than what sits in their echo chamber. I think for the most part, the folks that are actually in leadership are more moderate and more business mind and more long, looking at big picture. And that's why they're in leadership. But it's very difficult to manage the extremism that exists within. I think in, with time, we'll get there. But I don't see that in the near future. As you see the behavior of a lot of the folks that are coming up now, a lot of the young people that are probably be in places where Mike and I sit right now in the next 10 years. I think they have a very different view of the world. Their upbringing was very different. You have members in both of our caucuses that have lived in environments where they've not been outside of their community, meaning that their exposure to people of a different race has been very limited. Their exposure to outside of their communities have been very limited. Right. Not all of them. But I will tell you that. I can't walk them out in their shoes. I only hear about and read about the things that they've encountered. So I can't blame them for who they are. But the only thing that I could do is make a commitment from the time that I'm in public office to do everything that I can to get us moving in the direction to where civility is a thing again where statesmanship is honored and respected, where people that are having dinner from other, uh, uh, from different sides of the aisle, and then there'll become a day where we won't have a conversation about size of the aisle anymore. We'll have a conversation as Mike and Anthony, and as Alabamians, and as Americans, right? Because people are right now sick and tired of being sick and tired of politics, the bomb throwing, the divisiveness. We understand that the news media benefits from a lot of the divisiveness and the bomb throwing, right? But just like we've gotten to the point of polarization, we can get back to the point of civility and decency. And that's kind of what I see in the next 10 years. But it is going to take folks like Mike and I to start moving in that direction because before me, it was pretty extreme. During my time is extreme at the federal level, but it's less extreme on the party side than it has been a long time. And so I think we're moving in the right direction. We're not moving as quickly as we can, but I will tell you that there are people in the business community and other communities in the education community that would much rather see us work together to promote growth and opportunity. And in order to promote growth and opportunity in our state, 
we have to do things to to make certain that people know that this is a new day in Alabama, that we're more inclusive. We embrace diversity and differences in opinion and ways of life. And the only way we're going to attract businesses is the corporate community has a responsibility. And we're beginning to see the corporate community step up to the plate. But there are still other organizations that benefit from us being divided. And those individuals are going to have to be put in check. And I think that the people you see in, in leadership and coming along right now will be the people to do it. What do you say, Mike? The sad thing, here's the big problem. I think I would say that most people inherently would like things to get better. Most people are, I think, are fed up with it and don't like it. But the problem is there are people of all political persuasions who it's in their interest to keep this division going. This division plays to their favor. And I will tell you, the condition our country is, is a reflection of who we've become. And until, until it gets to the point, we're not going to get where we need to be. We can be a voice crying in the wilderness and we can keep crying. And, and as many people can needs to, need to keep doing that. But as long as people can throw those bombs and take the cheap shots and point the finger at how bad the other folks are, and as long as that wins them elections, we're going to keep hearing and I'll tell you this, I've been in the legislature since 02. I've had five elections, numerous primaries, campaigns. I have never done a negative ad. I don't think I've ever said a negative word about an opponent. And it hasn't been necessary. But as long as people keep doing what they're doing, and as long as demonizing the other side wins you a primary, then we're going to keep hearing it. At some point, the public's got to get sick of it. If they don't get sick of it, it will continue to be bad. You know, you know, once upon a time in Alabama, you had to take a segregationist position to win. People would have to win, and it worked. But then it got to the point that it quit working. And when it quit working, folks quit doing it. Uh, I, I hate to be cynical. You know, folks should really believe it, but unfortunately, a lot of times, there's a lot of folks that ain't like us that get in politics. They, there are two, diff two different sorts of people that get in politics. Some people get in politics to be somebody, and others get into it to try to do something. And those people want to be somebody. They want to hear themselves talk. And, and one of the things, when somebody gets arrogant and full of themselves, what they tend to do is they think that it makes them look bigger by pointing a finger at how sorry somebody else is. So there's certain sorts of people that get into politics that do it by finger pointing and, and ginning up the base, throwing out the red meat, talking about how bad the other side is. And as long as it works, people will do it. So before we go, I insist on ending on a positive note. We are surrounded by acrimony and pandemics, and uh, 2020 has not been a good news year. I would like each of you to give me your most optimistic prediction for 
the next 12 months? How are we going to start turning the corner? And how will each of you help to make it so? Start with you, Anthony. Well, I'll be very brief because you 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 asked about ending on a good note in the my perception of the next 12 months is that the polarization will be thicker over the course of the next 12 months than it was of the previous 12 months. Policy-wise, I think that we'll get a lot of things done, but I think we'll get a lot of things done while because the rest of America will be distracted by the talking heads and the polarization but I think that the lawmakers will quickly realize that we're not managing this crisis properly. It's COVID-19. People are hurting. Businesses are going under. Our education, our children are not performing at the level near, not close to the level that they should be performing at, that we're losing our place in the, in the world. And so I think that our, our lawmakers will understand that data and see that data and realize that while everyone else is distracted for one reason or the other in the polarization because of the election, that we're going to make some important steps to get America working again. And so I see the noise continuing, but I see the politics and our political leaders working behind the scenes to get the job done. What do you say, Mike, your most optimistic prediction for the next year? I will tell you, it's the same thing I've been hoping for and praying for. And I think it's going to come someday. I hope I live to see it. And my most optimistic hope, the, the thing is, a lot of these political issues that we're talking about, a lot of these policy issues that we're talking about, is so many of them have an underlining spiritual problem. We have this spirit of contention and arrogance and pridefulness. And what I'm hope and what I'm hoping and praying for is that at some point that spirit of peacefulness and mutual respect and, and the spirit of fear will begin to subside. And we can look at people for who they are instead of who we think they are. And I'm just praying for a spiritual awakening, not a religious awakening. That's different. I'm talking about a spiritual awakening. If you're in the right mindset, if you're in the right spiritual mindset, none of these problems that we're facing are that hard. Until we do that, we can't make our country better. That's what it takes. And I do think that there's a growing number of people that are tired of what they've been seeing. And I think there's a growing number of people that are hungry for the same thing that me and Anthony are hungry for. And I'm just hoping that it continues to grow and that at some time in my lifetime, it reaches that tipping point where then our political process will begin to work. You know, we forget sometimes in the middle of all the acrimony. When you read just parts of the Federalist Papers, when you read about what the founders contemplated when they had America in mind. Some of it was just this. They thought we were going to be a scrappy bunch of people 
who would always be at it. They formulated a system of checks and balances so nobody would get too far out of control. I think they misgaged. You know, they, they put too much reliance in it being a big country. So they thought that the extremists would never gain too much power. I think that that hasn't proven accurate. But they did put into place a system that has the power to correct itself. And we've been in a process of correction, basically, since we started. And to your point about an awakening, let's start it right here, right now, because we can do better. We should do better. More people want us to do better. And so we just have to. Representative Mike Ball, Representative Anthony Daniels, stay safe. And I'll talk to you real soon. Thanks for being here. All right. Thank you. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.